This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. Today's show is about a chilling tale from Minnesota's political past, one that I had never heard until reader Jessica Rappaport submitted a question about it. The protagonist of this story is Ernest Lundeen, who spent three decades trying to succeed in Minnesota politics. But it was his final years as a U.S. senator representing the state that have defined his legacy— since Lundin was spreading Nazi propaganda in the run-up to America's intervention in World War II. Lundin's story got some national attention in 2022 when MSNBC host Rachel Maddow featured it prominently in the podcast Ultra. That's how Jessica learned about it and why she contacted Curious Minnesota for more information on Lundin. I'm talking today with reporter Kevin Dukesher, who wrote a story on Lundin for Curious Minnesota. But first... Here's Jessica. I decided to get a hold of Curious Minnesota after listening to Rachel Maddow's podcast. And the name Ernest Lundin came up. And I was like, well, I've, I've heard of Mondale. I've heard of Humphrey. I've never heard this guy's name before. And I was curious about what, What's the story with him? I just heard a bit about it and Rachel. So, yeah, that was pretty much why I called in. Thanks to Jessica for that question. Here's my conversation with Kevin. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. So I just want to say this is such a fascinating tale, and we're going to get into a whole chronology here, but um, the ending of this story is completely shocking to me and so I just I, that's a cliffhanger foreshadowing for the listeners out there like stay tuned because the way this story ends is kind of unbelievable um, so Ernest Lundin not a name that is uh, you know we don't have like Lundin Boulevard anywhere around town this is not a name that kind of like stuck around in the Minnesota cultural lexicon I feel like to some degree who is this guy um, uh, you know because he kind of was around for a long time in political circles Right. Well, Ernest Lundin was born in South Dakota in 1878 to Swedish immigrant farmers, and he served in the Spanish-American War, graduated from Carleton College in Northfield, and he went to the U of M for law school, uh, where he was a champion orator, and he became a lawyer in Minneapolis. And he starts practicing around 1906 or so? That's right. That's right. But clearly, his heart was in elective office, and yes. he got elected very early. He was first elected to the state House of Representatives in 1910, representing a southern portion of Hennepin County, and he was elected as a Republican. What's his sort of political views, basically? Well, he was, he was considered something of a progressive on domestic issues anyway, um, things like election reform, labor legislation, and the like. He, he was in favor of that, and apparently he was quite popular. Okay. So he gets to Congress in 1916. We won't explain the whole campaign, but let's say he, he wins he wins election to Congress. And what's the big issue that he's suddenly faced with? Well, within the year, the big issue facing the United States was the, um, the war in Europe, which had started in 1914, and whether the United States should get involved in the war. 
And which pre- was really unprecedented. I mean, this was a whole new question for us in some way. I mean, a war of this nature and this scale, right? We had never fought overseas. That's right. And there was a fairly widespread opinion in the United States that we really had no business going over there. But for reasons that uh, you can pick up in the history book, President Wilson asked Congress to declare war against Germany in 1917. And uh, Congress took a vote, and Ernest Lundeen was one of 50 in the House of Representatives who voted against going to war. And so just to clarify, I mean, so there was this sort of skepticism, but then once Wilson commits to it, it's like your patriotic duty to support it. Is that kind of the vibe? Yeah, that's correct. Lundeen was lambasted as being, you know, unpatriotic, disloyal, seditious. Theodore Roosevelt, who was an ex-president at the time, called him a shadow hun. So then... uh, Lundin sought re-election in 1918, and he lost in the primary. Okay, so he was just as quickly as he got in, right. 1916, he's gone uh, from the scene, and he's primaried. Um, and it's, I, there's this great anecdote here where he goes to, is it Ortonville? Yeah, Ortonville. And, he, and he's like speaking about, he's he gives the League of Nations. He doesn't like, this is after the war, right? That's, that's right, 1919. And the term uh, ridden out of town on a rail uh, comes to mind. What happened to it does. Him? It does come to mind. Uh, what happened was apparently the sheriff and a group of townspeople in Ortonville, which is on the South Dakota border, uh, locked him into a refrigerated rail car. Uh, that was headed uh, back east across the state, and so he was. He traveled a few miles down the road before he was released. Wow! So it's like you know, you tell this tale, and it's like, well, that's the end of his political career. <laughs> we can close the book on Ernest Lundin, but no, he's he's determined to get back in office. Tell me about the perennial candidate that Ernest Lundin becomes, because this is why I say when he was around, he was really around the political scene for a long time. Yeah, well, many of us uh, remember Harold Stassen and how he ran for office and president again and again and again. Well, uh, Lundin kind of out-Harold Stassen, Harold Stassen. He lost nine elections in 13 years, uh, ranging from, I think he tried at least twice for Congress. He ran for governor. He ran for chief justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court until he finally was returned to Congress in 1932 I think it was an at-large seat in Minnesota. And he's now a farmer laborite before the DFL. That's right, before the DFL. He wasn't a Democrat. He was the Farmer Labor Party, which was a third party that was very popular in Minnesota at the time. So suddenly this perennial losing candidate, he's not only in Congress, but then he falls into a U.S. Senate seat, right? I mean, uh, tell me that tale, because it's kind of amazing how quickly he rises to become a pretty significant person. Very serendipitous. Uh, Floyd B. Olson, who was the popular governor of Minnesota during the Depression, was the farmer labor candidate for the U.S. Senate in 1936 before he died at the Mayo Clinic. Was he in the Senate at that? He'd no, you know, no, he was uh, Floyd. This is mid-campaign. Right, exactly. The Farmer Labor Party needed a candidate to run for the Senate, and they chose Ernest Lundeen. And he wins. He won big time. He won 62% of the vote against the Republican candidate. Okay. So Ernest Lundin's in, in the Senate now. He's a big deal. And he's like, what? He's a pro-New Dealer. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's supporting sort of, these are sort of left, more leftist policies, essentially. Yeah. The Farmer Labor Party was considered uh, more liberal, certainly, than the Republican Party. And he backed much of the New Deal being put forth in Washington by the Roosevelt administration. He backed workers' rights and unemployment insurance but he opposed, as the war clouds gathered in Europe uh, or in the late 1930s, Lundin's voice was raised against 
much as it had been during World War One, against uh, intervention. Right. And it, you and I have talked on this podcast when we talked about Lindbergh that this was sort of, I mean, this was not an uncommon view at the time, right? In these late, this is pre-Pearl Harbor. That's right. It was a very popular view, uh, especially in the upper Midwest, but certainly also around the country. The America First movement was very popular and enlisted the support of many uh, respected and uh, prominent legitimate uh, people at the time. And so this is, you know, meanwhile, just as with what we talked about with Lindbergh, you have Kristallnacht is going on, uh, you know, Germany is invading Czechoslovakia and Poland. And in 1939, on the radio, Lundin says that he was resolved, quote, never to vote an American dollar or drop of American blood into the quarrels of Europe. So he's really uh, leaning hard against intervention. And so this sort of, you know, catches the attention of uh, George Sylvester Verick and who knew about Lundin. But tell us about who's this guy? Who's Because he becomes this very important figure in this whole story. Yeah, George Verick was a German national who had become a naturalized American. Along the way, he had become an agent of the German government, and that would be the Nazi German government, in the United States. And he was aware of Lundin's stance during World War I, and he obviously was listening to Lundin as uh, the 30s went on and as uh, Germany moved in Europe. And he believed that Lundin could really help keep the United States out of the war, which was a priority of the German government. And he's kind of a, as he, I think you described him maybe as a propagandist, or uh, is that kind of what he I is? I think that's correct. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. He, well, what he did was he wrote speeches and position papers and distributed them to the anti-interventionists in Congress including Ernest Lundin, who would often insert these papers in the congressional record. And then that's material that those congresspeople can then send out to their constituents postage-free, thanks to the franking privilege that Congress enjoys. And was there something in this for Lundin? Well, Lundin uh, needed some money, and Vera could funnel money to Lundin from the German embassy. We're not entirely sure how much, but they certainly helped out. Okay, so he's a little spread a little thin, and he uh, and I mean this is not against his normal positions, basically. But that's right. Um, yeah, and so so he's doing this, and they're sending out these speeches, uh, sort of with the franking privilege. Then these are sort of like speeches that are anti-interventionists that are going to people around the country now, constituents and what have you. They're going to tens of thousands of Americans, and this essentially is German propaganda. And so there's an accusation that comes out later in a book called Sabotage, The Secret War Against America, where they say that Lundin, the, the Lundin Senate office was sort of, quote unquote, Virex Washington headquarters, sort of like, you know, yeah, he's talking to all these other Congress people and what have you, but this is really the HQ of, of this operation. Yeah, people became aware that they'd see Virex spend quite a bit of time in Lundin's office. And as you said, it kind of became his headquarters on Capitol Hill. Okay. Okay. So this kind of accelerates. And then in March 1940, Lundin sort of goes to this dinner. Is it at the Waldorf Astoria? I think it was a Waldorf in yeah. New York. And and this is like a significant moment, mostly for the optics, <laughs> which we'll talk about in a second. But like, so what is this dinner? It's a dinner hosted by the German-American Commerce Board, uh, kind of a Chamber of Commerce type organization. But it was attended by uh, several figures in the German government, including a, an emissary of Hitler's 
And this photo is not on our website uh, because it's unclear who has permissions, uh, like who who owns this photo essentially. But he's standing beneath a Nazi f- a flag with a swastika on it. I mean, here's this Minnesota U.S. senator standing beneath a swastika. Uh, it's just jarring, most jarring photo. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, and he gives a speech. Yeah, it's a startling photo. And but again, this was, as you suggest, you know, his opinion at the time, obviously, that uh, we ought to stay out of uh, Germany's way in Europe and uh, and mind our own business. And so this brings us to this cinematic um, sort of coda to Lundin's political career. So August 31st, 1940, now we're going to slow down time a bit. So that morning, you know, his, his secretary finds him, as you write in there, and, and what's he's not in good shape. What's going on? Well, his secretary found him sobbing in his office, and she later quoted him as saying, quote, I've gone too far to go back, and that he continued to cry as she drove him to the airport. That's very ominous. So, and one of the sources that you spoke to kind of said, what, what's going on here? What, why, is, why is he sort of, you know, he's sweating over something here? What, what is it? Yeah, I spoke to Washington-based historian Bradley Hart, who wrote a book on, on this, uh, the whole uh, era in 2018. And was a key source for this story. And was story. a key source for the Maddow podcast, and I spoke to him as well. And Brad, Bradley Hart told me, by this point, the Virick story is starting to get out. And if you're Lundin, you know two things. Your relationship with Virick is pretty deep, and your financial relationship with Virick is very real. And uh, Hart noted that it would have been ruinous at that point to have it exposed. Okay, so Lundin, he's he's feels the world closing in on him, or the you know somebody's closing in on him. Gets on this airplane again, August thirty first, nineteen forty. Then what happens? What happens is the airplane is headed to Pittsburgh first and then to the Twin Cities. So it's headed northwest out of Washington. But it comes down within a few minutes in northern Virginia near the Maryland line. and uh, In like a cornfield? I mean, this is a massive plane crash. It's, a, it's, it's in a cornfield. And what makes it mysterious is we're still not entirely sure, even after the FBI, FAA investigated, what entirely happened? Some people thought it might have been a, a brilliant lightning flash that uh, disoriented the pilot. Some people thought it might have been a wind shear. Some people thought that it might have been pilot error. But for whatever reason, the plane came down in this cornfield and killed all 25 passengers on board. It was, in terms of fatalities, the worst civilian plane crash in United States history to that point. And so... I mean, unbelievable, an unbelievable tragedy. And then amid the wreckage is a speech that he was going to deliver, which is sort of doubling down on his defense of Nazi Germany and Hitler. I mean, tell us a little bit about, again, that that detail is sort of so um, cinematic in a sense that you can't, I, I can imagine this being in a movie one day, but what, what is that? What's, what's he about to go say? Well, they found a 106-page speech, if you can imagine, in that cornfield that Lundin was going to deliver that weekend in Minnesota on German contributions to the United States. And just to give you two quotes to give you a flavor of the speech, Lundin was going to say, quote, There is so little foundation for the hysterical cry that Hitler is attacking the world that it would not be worth mentioning were it not for the invidious intrigue behind it, unquote. And he also suggested that Germany was interested only in reclaiming the territory that it had lost in World War I. 
Quote, to this day, Germany has, to my knowledge, taken no step which was not directed at or incidental to the restoration of pre-1914 Germany and Austria. Unquote. Wow. Okay. So, you know, we should just point out this was not all of this stuff around the intrigue was not yet known because back home he's kind of just the U.S. senator has died. It's a big deal. And so he gets the full full funeral, full regalia, everything. I mean, what what, what happens back home here? Yeah, it was a shocking story. It was a national story, uh, both in terms of the fatalities of the crash and the fact that a United States senator had been killed. And back in Minnesota, he laid in state in the the Capitol Rotunda, which doesn't happen for a lot of people. And um, he was buried with full military honors at Fort Snelling National Cemetery. So it's after his death that the word starts to leak out in the press about what might have been going on with this guy, right? Yeah, only a week after his death, actually. Nationally syndicated columnist Drew Pearson, who was famous uh, nationwide for his political uh, reports, said in his column that the Department of Justice had been investigating Lundin because of Virick's many visits to his Capitol Hill office. And Pearson said the proof was that three of the passengers who had been killed with Lundin were employees of the Department of Justice, including one FBI man. The idea being apparently that they were there to sort of monitor what Lundin was doing and saying. Okay. And so... The attorney general and Herbert Hoover sort of deny this, but the historians today think that this, I mean, what do they say about what was really going on? Well, the attorney general of the United States, Robert Jackson at the time, uh, denied that justice, the Justice Department had been investigating Lundin. J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, also denied that they had been investigating uh, Lundin. And uh, that's a statement that Bradley Hart, among others, said was not true. Okay, they just wanted this to to go away. To go away. Yeah. Okay, and Norma Lundin, Ernest Lundin's wife, comes voraciously to his uh, to his defense. Right. Norma Lundin spoke in May of 1941. She went on NBC radio to deny the charges that were made by Pearson and by Walter Winchell, another famous and nationally known columnist that her late husband hadn't been a loyal American. Okay. So this is still not the end of the story because they, so they put Varick on trial uh, and this is where it becomes kind of the proxy evidentiary, uh, you know, discovery into Lundin in a sense. Why is, why is Varick pulled into to criminal proceedings? I mean, what, well, what, what happened there? Yeah, Varick was charged. Uh, now, this is 1942, so this is after Pearl Harbor and, uh, you know, opinions have changed radically, of course. Virick was charged with failing to disclose his Nazi ties when he was registered as a foreign agent with the U.S. government, and he was ultimately convicted of that charge. Okay, and so this trial reveals some pretty interesting details about what was going on behind the scenes. Well, among other things, uh, they found out that Norma Lundin, shortly after the plane crash, had had gone to uh, her husband's uh, Capitol Hill office and removed his files on Virick. That's suspicious. That is suspicious. <laughs> and one of Lundin's former secretaries also testified at court that he was so concerned about the matter that he had searched Virick's briefcase. And uh, while Virick was, was uh, you know, visiting Lundin and snuck into the office at night to pour over Lundin's files. This is another scene in the in the movie, by the way. It's sure. like the, the late night secretary returns to the office going through. I can see it. I can picture it. 
Okay, I mean, an unbelievable tale. And thank you for putting this all together. I think that what's interesting to me is that you and I, had we talked about this and neither of us knew much about this story. And you in particular are very schooled in Minnesota history. And I'm, I'm I'm a transplant trying to figure things out here. But why do you think it is that that we kind of like lost this as part of our cultural? I mean, it's a bit of a stain on the state's political history. So did we forget it because we didn't like it or what? Well, I think that's that's certainly true. It's an unpleasant episode. And of course, Minnesotans don't like to think of themselves as being unloyal or disloyal. I or suppose. Nazi or sympathizers. Nazi sympathizers, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a bigger question. He certainly was sympathetic with the German government. We don't know what to what degree he was sympathetic with the Nazi methods and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. The fact of the matter is that just over a year after the plane crash, we had Pearl Harbor, and the United States went to war against both Japan and Germany, and I think that the Lundin episode sort of uh, fell into the shadows uh, beneath that cataclysmic event. You know, the historians I talked to for the story said that they didn't think that Lundin was a spy. Bradley Hart pointed out that spies typically give away classified information and that he didn't think that Lundin would have had access to that. But what Lundin did help with was in spreading political intelligence. I talked both to Bradley Hart, a Washington-based historian who wrote his book in 2018, and I, took to, I talked to a local uh, historian of the 20th century, Doug Rossenow, who is a professor at Metro State University in St. Paul. Okay. Well, Kevin, thank you so much, as always, for joining us and telling us another fascinating tale from Minnesota history. Always good to be with you, Eric. Okay, that's it for today's show. Thanks, as always, to Matt Gilmer for editing this podcast. Do you have feedback for us or a question you'd like us to answer? Send us a note at curious at startribune.com. And if you are enjoying this show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.